Uh, last week, I, I passed through border controls at Gatwick Airport, and, and there were long queues. Not unbearably long, but they were long. And as you go along the queue, there are lots of signs saying, have your passport ready. Um, and so I obeyed the sign, and I found my passport. It was ready in my hand. And then you walk along, you come to the next sign, have your passport ready. And I checked, kept checking. My passport was ready. And, and there's a little bit of excitement as you hand your passport over. There's normally a frown on the face of the border guard as they check, as they check out the details. Um, excitement, not fear, because I was fairly confident everything was in order and I would get waved through. Uh, but what if, when you give your passport to be checked, something goes wrong? Now, what if your passport is not valid or genuine and, and you, you've been so confident that it would be okay but when it was examined, it was found not to be real. There would be no exception. There would be no way through. And many people have a similar kind of false confidence, not about their passports, but about their faith. Uh, they assume they have a genuine and a real faith, but when it's examined, it is found to be false. Now, the great tragedy is that some people reach the end of their time on earth holding such false confidence. And then when it's too late, they find out their faith was not real. Well, this passage that we have before us this morning gives us an opportunity with the words of Jesus uh, to have our faith examined and checked over to see if whether or not we are, what we are holding is real. So, so as we come to that, as we start to think about it, ask yourself, what kind of faith do I have? Now, how do you assess your faith? Uh, it, it may be you, you want to answer that question in comparison to what you think others have. You think when you're asked about your faith, you, you, maybe you think, well, my faith is not like this other person, uh, for better or for worse. It could be that you think, well, my faith is, is mine. It's, it's, it's what I make it to be. It's, I, I don't really like the idea. It's uncomfortable uh, to have my faith examined. It could be, though, that as you sit here, you haven't any faith. Um, well, whatever is going on, let's come and see what Jesus has to say. Uh, our passage is John 8, verse 31 to 59. Uh, we're picking up in the middle of a long discussion Jesus was having in the temple with the people around him. And, and some of you will have noticed, and those who have been paying careful attention, um, that we have skipped out a little bit in John's Gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we ended at John 7, 52, Last week, we picked up at John 8 and verse 12. Uh, and the bit that we missed out is a very well-known story about a woman caught in adultery. She's brought to Jesus, and Jesus says to the crowd, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Very well-known. It's a very moving story. The problem is we can't be sure that it was included in John's account. In fact, we can be fairly sure it wasn't originally part of what John wrote. Now, now, when John writes his gospel, the very last thing he writes, the very last verse is this. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And this encounter with the woman caught in adultery likely is one of those other things. Now, our task here this morning is to hear the word of God, not, not simply to think about things that happened, and, and since this passage is not part of the Word of God, not intended as part of the inspired record, uh, we can read it, we can find it interesting and useful, but I don't think we can preach it. Because when we preach, what we're doing is we're saying, this is what God says, 
And because it's what God says, then we must listen. Now that might raise some questions for you. I'd be very happy to talk with you afterwards about that. Uh, but last time, um, Andrew helped us to see uh, in the first part of chapter 8, verses 12 to 30, the gracious invitation of Jesus. Now, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, in his conversations, always appeals to those around him, always holds out life. And we also saw a gracious warning uh, when Jesus said, um, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. And in response to all of that, if you see verse 30, in response it says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. And our passage picks up with the next verse, with Jesus speaking to those who believe in him. In, in, in our times, when we hear about belief or about faith, I think we, we tend to treat it as a kind of passive thing. Now, if, if we say to someone that we have faith in God, that person tends to think that what we mean is that we have a kind of inner and private conviction about the existence of God. That's how our society tends to understand faith, that faith is something personal and private, and it shouldn't come out in public. It shouldn't affect how you behave. Now, if you're a nurse, for example, uh, you shouldn't express your faith in your work. That's how society understands faith. It's personal and it's private. A, a conviction within me about something. And so in our passage, we have these many people who believe in Jesus, uh, and we want to ask with that, what does it mean? What kind of belief is going on here? And Jesus is speaking to those who had believed. So as he speaks to those who had believed, let's, let's tune our ears to what he says, because there are many of us who are sitting here this morning finding ourselves in that broad category of those who have faith. He's speaking to those who have faith. So what will he say to you this morning? This is what he says, verse 31. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, Jesus says to these people, you, you believe in me, okay. This is what it means to be true disciples. What it means for your belief to be real. And what does it mean? He says, if you hold to my teaching. But literally, if you remain or if you abide in my word. You see, belief or faith isn't a private or passive thing. It's active dependence. It's the kind of difference between me standing here and thinking in my mind, that chair there can hold my weight. And I think that within me. That's private and passive. Active dependence is when I go and sit on the chair. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, if you remain in my word, to believe in Jesus is to, to continually put everything under what he says. That the whole direction of your life is set to learn from him and do as he says, to be controlled by his word. In the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs puts it like this, when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. That's a true disciple. True faith in Jesus holds to his teaching. Then, then you see what follows after. If you hold my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth. See, see, see this, this knowing truth isn't about learning lots and lots of stuff about how we relate to Jesus. 
A true disciple submits themselves to Jesus, and out of that submission comes the knowledge of the truth. Uh, Again, it's the book of Proverbs that puts it like this, when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That the fear of the Lord, a life submitted to God in the right way, rightly relating as a creature to the creator, the fear of the Lord, that's where knowledge begins. Out of that right relationship comes true knowledge. And then Jesus says, then what will follow after that? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Something delicious about that, isn't there? Something that sparkles at the sound of it. There's something in us that yearns for it. The truth will set you free. Well, in verse 30, many believe. In verse 31, Jesus sets out to those who believe what real faith looks like, and they do not like it. In verse 33, they become defensive. What do you mean, set free, they say? We don't need to be set free. We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been slaves of anyone. Now, they... They say this at a festival which is there to remember a moment in their history when those descendants of Abraham were set free from Egyptian slavery. In in the history of these people, they've been slaves to pretty much everyone. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, now the Romans. Uh, I I guess they've forgotten all of that. They're falling back onto some national pride because we're connected to Abraham, we are safe and secure. And Jesus gently challenges them. He suggests that simply being born in the family line of Abraham doesn't mean they're acting like him. In fact, in verse 37, he says, you are looking for a way to kill me. Comes as a bit of a surprise, doesn't it? He's he's speaking to those who believe in him. He says to those who believe in him, you're trying to kill me. Hold on to that for a minute. In verse 38, he says, I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence. And you're doing what you've heard from your father. But he doesn't say your, he just says father. He's raising this idea of family lines and how children bear the resemblance of their parents. He's saying to them, look, if you examine your behavior, you'll see by your behavior you don't share the likeness of Abraham. Well, verse 39, they are again defensive. Abraham is our father. And Jesus again gently challenges them. Trying Again, he says they're trying to kill him. And he proposes there is a different father for them. And the heat begins to rise in the conversation. In verse 41, they are more defensive. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus keeps pointing to how their behavior shows that's not the case. And then he makes very clear what he's saying in verse 44 when he says, you belong to your father, the devil. Well, now their backs are really up. Verse 48, they resort to insults. You're a Samaritan and demon-possessed. And Jesus keeps gently appealing to them. But but by the end of the the chapter, Jesus has been proved right. There is murder in them. They are trying to kill him. Verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him until he is dead. They think they believe in Jesus. But when their belief is examined, they are actually intent on killing him. And Jesus is saying to these people, you are not what you think you are. I wonder this morning if you would let him examine your faith like that. Or whether, like these people, you are maybe already putting up your defenses. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
What is that truth that brings freedom? Uh, I think in our passage there are two particular great truths that Jesus draws out that bring that freedom. And here is the first one. It is the truth about sin. See, the, the, the people are right. When Jesus speaks about freedom, he implies they are slaves. And the idea of them being slaves was offensive to them. I'm not sure it's quite the same today. I think today the idea of needing freedom is quite fashionable. Every cause gets put into this kind of oppression narrative. Everybody tells a story of them being oppressed and needing freedom. So today if somebody says you need freedom, that goes down pretty well. What doesn't go down so easily is how Jesus explains slavery. Not talking about political slavery or the oppressive forces of the system or the market or the culture. No, in in verse 34, he underlines the importance of what he says. He introduces it by saying, very truly, I tell you. Especially, we have to prick up our ears here. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from slavery to sin, says Jesus. Well, who is a slave to sin? Everyone who sins. And everyone sins. Now, how comfortable are you with that? It's not easy. It's not an easy truth. If you sin and everyone sins, then you are a slave to sin. Jesus goes deeper in. Because the people protest. and They say, well, we're not slaves to sin. We're children of Abraham. Jesus says, look at your behavior. Verse 38, he says, you're doing what you heard from your father. Verse 41, you're doing the works of your own father. He's gently building up to be as clear as he possibly can when he gets to that, that crunch line in verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil. And Jesus is saying, if you sin... You are slaves to sin, and that shows that you are also children of the devil. Not not literal children. The devil doesn't produce offspring like that, but spiritual replicas. You see, with this, Jesus is bringing them all the way back into Genesis chapter 3, back to that time when sin first polluted the world, and God said, the offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman, they'll be at loggerheads for generations. In John 8, Jesus is saying those who sin are slaves of sin and show they are the spiritual and moral offspring of the snake. And and he explains what it means. Again, in verse 44, he gives this very deep description of sin. First of all, he says to them, you want to carry out your father's desires. You want to carry out your father's desires. Think on that. It's it's saying that that sin is something that operates not contrary to our desires, but it is right embedded within the things that we want. And it is wanting to do what the devil wants. Sin isn't a a surface problem. It's not something you can put a sticking plaster over and forget about. It is a problem of radical corruption in the human heart. The second part of Jesus' deep description of sin is to show how it works out. Now, he said, you do what the devil wants. Well, what does the devil want? Well, Jesus explains. He says, he was a murderer, a human slayer from the beginning. 
not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, the devil hates God. He is, his every intention is against God. And people, all people, every person, everyone in this room has been created in the image of God. And the devil's desire then is to ruin and destroy people, to attack the divine image. He was so in the beginning and is still today. His hatred for God is worked out in his destruction of humanity. And our sin, our sin against others follows the same pattern. See, when we mistreat people or dismiss them or objectify them and treat people like objects by ignoring them or, or going over them or, or gossiping or slandering or when we steal and lie or when we lust and covet, when we, when we close our hearts to the needs of others, or, or when we rage in bitterness against other people, or when we withhold forgiveness from them, in all the ways that we belittle the dignity and honour of our fellow image bearers, in all those ways we are acting in devilish ways. He was a murderer from the beginning and his children bear his likeness. Oh, we see this shouting loud across all history. We see it in the secret places of every human heart. But, but not only a murderer, Jesus says, he deals in the currency of lies. That's his native language. Now, we, we can't miss how Jesus is addressing us in this. If you sin, and we all sin, you are a slave to sin, and furthermore, a child of the devil bearing his murderous likeness in the world. This is the truth about sin, and a hard truth it is to swallow. Hard that, that we're included in this description. Can, can, can we accept what Jesus says? Can we follow the argument right into our own hearts and say, I sin, and so I'm a slave to sin? And therefore, a child of the devil, wanting to do his desires. And perhaps you feel something in you that resists that, that, that prickles a little bit. Maybe, maybe it's more than a prickle. Maybe it's a raging objection. How dare anyone say that about me? That, that's not me. But, but it's the objection that confirms the reality. The devil deals in lies and deceit. He always has in his children. His children are so wrapped up in the web of deception, they're not able to hear the truth. That's what Jesus keeps telling these people. In verse 37, he says, you have no room for my word. In verse 43, he says, why is my language not clear to you? The reason you do not hear, because you are unable to hear what I say. Verse 47, whoever belongs to God hears what God says, the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Now the whole reason these people are so offended by Jesus' talk about their need to be free from sin, the reason they can't hear it was because they didn't belong to God. Trapped in the lies of their father, the devil. Now sin comes out most clearly when it's seen in how people react to Jesus. And here is Jesus in our passage standing in front of these people and they won't listen He's so clear, but they won't accept what he has to say. In verse 42, he says, if they did belong to God, they would love Jesus and they would trust him and they would continue in his word, but they don't. 
They don't accept his word. They don't trust him. They don't love him. They're trying to kill him. It is hard to accept what Jesus says about our sin. And perhaps we feel a bit defensive or could sound a bit unfair maybe. But if your belief in Jesus doesn't allow room for what he says about your sin, then your belief in Jesus is not real. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What's the truth that brings freedom? One of the truths in our passage is the hard truth about our sin. Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. No, no, we can refuse to accept that. We can kick against it. We can deny it. I I, I guess we could despair. We we could circle around in in, in self-pity and and, and wallow in how awful we are. Those could be the very voices that are already sounding in your head. But instead of doing any of that, we could hear the other great truth in our passage. The other great truth in our passage is the truth about the Savior. Um, A few weeks ago, I was at um, the Keswick Convention with a a number of you here. Um, uh, And the man who was doing the the main Bible teaching, he told a story. This is my disclaimer for his story. I had to say it came from somewhere else before I tell it. The story went like this. A a man had some tests with his doctor. And um, the the doctor phoned him and asked him urgently to come and see him straight away. So straight away, he goes to see the doctor. And the doctor says to the man, I've got some good news and some bad news. And the man says, oh, okay, all right, well... um, We'll start with the good news. What's the good news? And the doctor said, well, the good news is the test results have come in and you have 24 hours to live. Man, golly, that doesn't sound very good. What's, what's the bad news? Said, the bad news is that the results are a day late. It's terrible, isn't it? Really bad. Really, really bad. Um, but, but imagine you, you, you go to your doctor and the doctor detects there is some terrible disease and yet it's a very kind doctor. He doesn't want to upset you. So, so they don't tell you the bad news. They just say everything's okay. That wouldn't be a good doctor, would it? But, although I wonder if sometimes we treat Jesus like that. Treat him as, as though he's too kind to tell us the really bad stuff about our sin. Well, that's not what Jesus is like. That's not what a good doctor is like. A good doctor tells the truth about the patient so the doctor can provide the best treatment. That's what Jesus does here. See what, he, see what he does. He says, the truth will set you free. They say, we've never been slaves. You don't need to be freed. Jesus says, I'm talking about the, the worst kind of slavery of all, the slavery of sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But then see what he says afterwards, immediately afterwards, verse 35. He says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family. That's true. A, a slave has no safety, no security, no future. He says, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, why does Jesus tell them that they are slaves to sin? It's so he can tell them about a Son who sets slaves free. And the freedom is the freedom of a permanent place in the family. It's where John's gospel began back in the opening verses. John speaks about all who believe in the Son, who believe in Jesus. He gives the right to become children of God. John 3.35 says the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands because there is a son, a great son, who can make slaves into sons. 
That is freedom from sin. Humanity wasn't made for sin. And yet sin came in and all sinned and the corruption of sin taints everything. And the penalty for sin right from the beginning was the penalty of death. But now here is the son. And he is the true son of God. He's come in the flesh so we can set slaves free. Free to be what we were made to be. Free to love God and to love others and to love the world. Free to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Free indeed because the freedom the son brings is freedom for life. The second time in our passage that Jesus turns up the volume with a very truly I say to you comes in verse 51. Very truly I say to you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. To obey his word is to keep his word, to remain in it, just like he said in verse 31. True disciples continue in his teaching. True disciples, those whose faith is real, will never see death. Why? Because if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, when when, when we sin, we put ourselves into a prison cell out of which there is no escape. And we can throw ourselves against the walls of that cell. We can try to dig ourselves through the floor. We can weep and we can wail, but we cannot get ourselves out. But the prison can be opened from the outside. And Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ is the one who can set you free. Can't set ourselves free. We can't undo what we've done. We can't unmake and remake ourselves. We can't reconfigure the mess of our own hearts. We can't undo the demands of divine justice. God said the soul that sins must die. And that death must be eternal in the horror of the outer darkness. We cannot set ourselves free. But if the Son sets you free, Jesus came into the world, came to set sinners free, and only he can do it. Those who trust him with real faith will never see death, but pass from this present corruption into eternal perfection beyond. Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We can refuse that. We can despair. But there is a son who can set you free. Don't let your sin keep you from Jesus. Let your sin draw you to him and only to him because he's the only one who can set you free. How can he do that? He can do it because of who he is. He can do it because of who he is. In verse 42, as Jesus builds to that heavy truth that they are children of the devil, he starts by saying, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Jesus has come from God. His birth wasn't his beginning, it was his sending, his coming. He came from God, sent from God with the purpose of God. And his purpose, in verse 38, is to tell what he's seen in the Father's presence. In verse 45, his purpose is to tell the truth. Now, in a world of many, many truths, there's one truth that can be fully trusted. And it's that spoken by the one who came from God. And Jesus challenges them in verse 46. You see that? Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He's saying, look at the life of Jesus. Do you find the behavior of a trickster or a deceiver? No. He's opening the way up for C.S. Lewis's dilemma that he, he spoke about in his radio broadcast and came into the book Mere Christianity when he said this. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That people say, 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman and or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Can you prove him guilty of sin? Are you content to dismiss him as a madman or a demon? It's what the crowd want to do. The crowd say, you're a Samaritan, you're demon-possessed. Do you want to join them with that? Jesus claims he's the true son from the Father to speak the truth of God and to honor the Father by that. His response to their insults, he says, I'm not going to defend myself. The Father will do it. I don't need to defend myself to you. But to the very people who call him demon-possessed, he holds out the hope of life. Uh, And they respond to his grace with rage. And again, they cling to Abraham. You can't talk about eternal life, Jesus, because Abraham died. Who do you think you are, they say. Jesus tells them exactly who he thinks he is. It says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You remember Abraham? Way, way back in history when the blessings of the good creation were buried under generations of sin following the fall. And then out of nothing, God chose Abraham and he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. All those blessings lost in sin. I'm going to bring them back and bring them back with interest. I'm going to release the goodness of my blessing to all the world. And I'm going to do it, Abraham, through your family. Into your family will be born one who will be the savior and the hope of all the world. And Abraham believed the promise. He believed that one day the Savior would come, that one day what was lost would be found, that what was broken would be remade, that what was ruined in sin's corruption would be redone. What was bought under the penalty of sin's transgression would be set free. Abraham saw and he was glad. In John 8, Jesus says that that hope, that promise, it's all about me, says Jesus. He says, I am that Savior and I've come to set the slaves free. Come to fulfill the ancient promise and crush the serpent's head. And he will do it through his death on the cross. Come to set sinners free by putting himself in their place. Coming to set sinners free by bearing the punishment that they deserve. And so releasing the slaves to sin from the claims of sin by bearing their sin. That's how God's love rushes out to a needy world. Rushing out in the person of Jesus Christ. Abraham saw it. He believed the promise and he was glad. And now that same promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ comes to us. We read it in the scriptures. We see the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross to win our freedom. And that hope of forgiveness and wholeness and life is held out. We see it. But like Abraham, do we believe it? And if we believe it, are we glad? This is the great truth of the Savior. That he can set sinners free. Come from the Father with that very purpose and upon him the hope of all the ages rests. 
got to ask her, how can he do it? You've got to ask yourself this question. Can we really trust our eternity into the hands of Jesus? Can you? We've got to all ask that question, don't we? Now, in a hundred years from now, our eternity will be decided for all of us in this room. For some of us, it will be much sooner. Can you trust your eternity into the hands of Jesus? Now, these people in John 8 take offense when Jesus offers them the hope of life. Even great Abraham died, they said, the prophet died. Jesus, who do you think you are? Verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. He's greater than Abraham. The promise that delighted Abraham is a promise that is Jesus. That's too much for the crowd. They they either choose to mishear or, again, trying to dismiss Jesus. They say, you're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Jesus is claiming so much more than they realize. And for the third time in our passage, Jesus cranks up the volume. Very truly, I say to you. Our attention is riveted. Very truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And when God sent Moses to rescue the descendants of Abraham in their Egyptian slavery, Moses said to God, who shall I say is sending me? And God said, you say, I am is sending you. You feel the shock of what Jesus says. I am. These people knew Jesus was like them. The same kind of sweat that was trickling down his forehead in the midday heat was the same as theirs. The the accent he spoke with belonged to the place of his upbringing. He ate the same food. He gulped the same water. He could be lost in a crowd among all the rest. And then this man claims, I am. The vulgarity of it hit them like a slap in the face. How dare he dirty the name of the most holy How dare he drag the immortal majesty down from his throne and claim that the I am can be contained in filthy flesh and blood. Such blasphemy must be removed and they reach for stones to kill him. Just wonder though, was there a pause before they roared in rage? And when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, but before their eyes started to scan the ground for stones big enough to kill, was there a pause? And in that pause, did they hear the invitation? Invited to go back through the ages, to soar back through history, back to the times of Abraham and then before, to go further back into the dark ages, back past the crumbling tower of Babel, back past the times when the floodwaters covered the earth, back and back through the, through, through the rise of cultures and, and the building of cities. Back to the times before, to the prehistoric times. Back, back to, to, to the fire swords guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Back and back and back to when the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. And then beyond, back, back before creation. Back before, before anything was and there was only God. Back then, when Jesus says, I am. That's what John has been at pains to say in his gospel. He introduced it with these very words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And that great Word has now become flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word who is Jesus Christ, the great I am, one God with Father and Spirit. How can he offer such freedom? How can the Son set you free indeed? 
Because he is the I am. God himself come in the flesh to save us forever to be with him. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So if you sin, and we all sin, then you are a slave to sin. And that means you need the one who can set you free. And there is one, and only one, the Son who is the Lord Jesus, who is the great I Am, who came to share our humanity, becoming what we are, so he might save what we are and rescue us from slavery into the beauty and happiness of the children of God. The truth will set you free. Here in our passage, it's the truth about our sin and the truth about the Savior. We can refuse that and walk away from it. (laughs) Instead, though, don't let your sin keep you from Jesus. Don't hold on to your sin as though he hasn't the power to save. He is the great I am. Let your sin draw you to Jesus. Yes, we are slaves to sin, but yes, There is the one Son of God who can set us free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So ask yourself again. What sort of faith do you have? In our passage, a group of people who believe in Jesus have their faith examined and it's found wanting. They won't accept the truth about their sin or the truth about the Savior. They think they believe, and Jesus says, you are not what you think you are. What about you? Jesus doesn't ask us to have it all sorted, doesn't ask us to get it right, doesn't ask us to pass some kind of test. He just says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If your belief in Jesus doesn't have room for his teaching about your sin or that he is the only saviour, then it's not real faith. But Jesus says true faith is when we hold to his teaching, seeking to be learners under him, learning from what the Bible says, seeking to be controlled by him because we love him. The true faith is love for Jesus. When we accept all that he says about our sin, we stop playing our sin down. We stop trying to make up for our wrong by doing good. But we ask Jesus to set us free because only Jesus can do that. And we trust that he is the all-sufficient saviour and commit to follow all his ways because we love him. And we love him because we've been set free indeed and adopted into the family of God. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. And true faith answers, we love you, Jesus. And we trust your word. We trust what you say about our sin and about your saving work. And we want to follow your ways. We love him because God is truly our father. True faith isn't personal and private. It's not a passive thing. It's active dependence. True faith is the difference between me standing here and thinking that Nikki is my wife. And then me treating her like my wife. It's not passive. It's active. True faith doesn't simply think Jesus is the saviour. True faith treats Jesus as the saviour and so seeks to follow his ways. True faith doesn't claim to believe and then not do what he says. So as we go into this week ahead, whatever this week ahead might hold, let's pray that our faith in Jesus would mean we treat him as saviour and Lord, that we trust him with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. And in all of our ways we submit.
just take a moment of quiet. Ask the Lord to examine your faith and to show you the Saviour.